Well, friends, I want to say thank you for those who kind of filled in for myself and Heather over the last three weeks. Uh, So we had a wonderful time off. It pained me to come back and do this again. I'm just, I'm kidding. It's good to be back. Um, But I'm very thankful for those who filled in for us, played for us, uh, spoke for me. We have just a wonderful group of people um, who speak and fill in and fill this pulpit. So I'm enormously grateful for that. As I was looking at the calendar coming up and considering what to do, um, I don't want to scare anybody, but Christmas is coming soon. We've got a few weeks before Advent begins and then Advent starts and then we hit the turn of the new year. Between now and Advent, what I want to do is I want to spend time in the book of Titus. And then we're going to be in our Advent series, and then, the Lord willing, we're going to hit another great big series starting at the turn of the year. But I'm going to ask if you'd open up your Bibles to the book of Titus. Now, Titus is a small book in the second half of the New Testament. The New Testament can be broken down in in a few segments so that we kind of know where we are, as many of you know. This is what we do on Sunday mornings. We open up our Bibles. We go through books of the Bible, book by book and verse by verse. And in the New Testament, it opens up with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have the one book, Acts, that is the history of the New Testament. And then we turn to the epistles of Paul, his letters to churches and individuals, The first group of letters in the New Testament are Paul's letters to the churches, beginning with Romans and ending with 2 Thessalonians. And then we have a few books in which Paul writes to individuals. Philemon, who is a leader in the church, the church actually meets in his home and Paul has some things to say to him. And then 1 and 2 Timothy in the book of Titus. And Timothy and Titus are young pastors. Paul knows and he's assigned them different churches and so he gives them instruction. And then we have more epistles later on in the book of the New Testament written by others, James and Peter and John and Hebrews in the book of Jude, and then we finish with the book of Revelation. So this is where Titus fits, inside of Paul's letters, inside of the New Testament. So the book of Titus, three short chapters, but I think we're going to find some wealth inside of this wonderful little book of Titus. So friends, what would we think of a letter that is written by Paul to a young pastor who is building a church in a culture that is known for violence and sexual immorality? What would we think of such a book? We might think, maybe we should read that book. Maybe we should hear what the Apostle Paul thinks is important, how he instructs this young pastor. This is how we lead people out of a culture like that. Here's how we make a difference in a culture like that. Here's how we structure the church as people are being saved and their lives are being transformed. Because this is exactly what Paul does when he writes to Titus. This is the culture that Titus is living in. In one of his journeys, you go through the book of Acts and you piece together information from the rest of his epistles, We actually don't know which one of his journeys, but Paul had actually made his way to Crete, spent some time there on the island of Crete, saw what was going on, and he assigned Titus to stay there. Paul had probably found a few young, fledgling churches. Paul also probably did what he normally does. He starts the church. He preaches the gospel where it's never been preached before. 
and he finds some young Christians and young churches. He leaves Titus there to organize and to set up the church. Paul probably writes the book of Titus about the same time that he writes his first book to Timothy. It's going to be late in his life. Probably after one of his major missionary journeys, he's writing back to these young pastors and he's giving instructions. And we're gonna, as we move through the book, we'll see how he's shuffling people around and he's providing help and, and taking care of people in different parts of the Mediterranean. And so he does in the book of Titus as well. But the cultural context of this book plays a really important role in understanding the kinds of things that Paul writes about in this short book. In Paul's day and age, the Greeks had a word, and the word was kretizo. Now, what the word literally means is to be a Cretan or to be someone from Crete. That's what the word literally means. What the word really means is to be a liar. That's how they used that word in Paul's day and age. The island of Crete actually had a long and ancient history, in some ways going back before the Greek and the Roman cultures and leading into the Greek and Roman cultures as well as being connected to their pantheon of gods. When we think of Zeus and Pan and Athena and all of these Greek gods and goddesses, the island of Crete actually plays an important historical role in that. The island of Crete during Paul's day and age also had a reputation of being a, uh, an island full of violence. Cretans in Paul's day and age were mercenaries. So they were soldiers for hire and when, when they were done, they would go back to the island of Crete and then sell their services to the next highest bidder. It's an island known for its sexual immorality it's actually something that Paul deals with over and over inside of this book. Not because it's a random thing or he and Titus disagree and so Paul's clarifying some points. It's because this is where Titus works. It's because this is what the culture is actually like. And then Paul, a little later on in this book, and this is one of the unique little details in this book, he quotes a Cretan poet saying that Cretans are untrustworthy liars. And then Paul adds a little sentence to that saying, the statement is true. <laughs> how would you like that to be how your culture is spoken of? And in fact, we sometimes still use that word as an insult. To call someone a Cretan is not a nice thing to call anybody. So we get a feel for the culture that Paul is writing to, that Titus the pastor is in. These young Christians who are being saved out of that culture, now everything about their lives needs to change because of Jesus Christ. So what Paul writes is about the radical transformation of the power of Jesus Christ. Now at the same time, the island of Crete sits in the middle of the Mediterranean. We've got a little map just so that you guys see this. You can see this in the backs of your Bibles as well. And it actually acts as an important economic hub because there are several large ports on the island of Crete. And you can see between um, Jerusalem and Judea and Egypt and Greece and Rome and Italy, um, you've got the island of Crete right in the middle of all of that. In the book of Acts chapter 27, on the last missionary journey that we have of Paul's, he actually lands in the port of Fair Havens there in Crete. And this is 
uh, one of those uh, missionary journey maps that you have in the backs of your Bibles. Then the shipwreck happens. They land on the island of Malta, and eventually Paul makes his way to Rome. So you've got this kind of culture. You have this kind of economic importance that Crete represents in this world. So this makes it a perfect place for the church to grow, for the church to be founded, for the church to be focused on Jesus Christ, for the church to be able to change and transform lives and an entire culture as well. So Paul determined that it deserved his effort and the effort of his team. So he's gonna tell Titus at one point in this book, you know, we were there for a little while and I left you, I assigned you so that you could help build and strengthen the church while you are there. So when Paul writes this to Titus, all of these things play a role in the importance of the impact of what this scripture has to say, not only to Titus, but to us as well. As we go through this book, we're gonna see it in three major parts, in three sections according to each chapter. In chapter one, we're gonna read about a new way of leadership, the way that Paul structures the church. Titus is given instructions about how to put the church in order, who should be leaders and what their lives should be like, who the elders should be, and so on and so forth. In fact, uh, Titus chapter one gives us some words that we still use today. At one point when Paul talks about uh, the elders, the leaders of the church in Titus chapter one, he uses the Greek word that gives us our word for presbyter or presbyterian. So we still use some of that language. A little later on in the same context, the Apostle Paul is gonna use the word that gives us our word Episcopalian or Episcopate. So all of it's about the ordering and the structuring and the elders and what their lives are like and how the church is put together. And in chapter one, we're gonna end up talking about a new way of leadership. In chapter two, we're gonna talk about the brand new household because of Jesus Christ. Because of the culture of the Cretans, God's design for men and women and the home was going to absolutely revolutionize their lives. It was different than the way they had ever lived before. What we may take for granted, for what we feel like we may need to defend more and more was utterly foreign to the Cretan culture. And so Paul writes about the new home that God gives us and how it's going to change things and how it will bear witness to the island of Crete as well. Then in chapter three, of a new form of leadership, a new home, and now we have the new life. The lives of these Christians need to imitate the goodness and the loving kindness of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there are a couple of points inside of this book. You know, you, it's, this is one of these books you read when you're going to bed at night, you feel like, oh, this is instruction, instruction, instruction. And then you hit something that stops you in your tracks. Paul waxes powerful and eloquent about the mercy and the salvation and the goodness of God. And he does that a couple of times in this book at the end of chapter two and then right in the middle of chapter three. The brand new life, what it is like and how it changes us and how it can change the world around us. In our passage of scripture this morning, the question that's gonna sort of guide us today is this. Why does Paul write about a God who cannot lie? 
Why does Paul write about a God who cannot lie? So we're going to read Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to make our way all the way down to verse 4. Count yourselves lucky. As I was doing some of my study this week, I ran across one pastor who did six weeks of sermons on the first five verses of Titus chapter one. I ran across another sermon that uh, was a long sermon that was only on four words in Titus chapter one, so you're welcome, just so you know. (laughs) Titus chapter one, and I think as we read this, I think you'll understand why this is important. Titus chapter one, verse one. Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul is servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. As you go back and you read through Paul's epistles, and we talked about the Romans all the way through, well, Titus and so on and so forth. This is a common kind of introduction as Paul begins to write to a church or to an individual, this is who I am, this is who's writing to you, this is what we're praying for you, this is what we are hoping for you. But as Paul opens this up, we need to make sure that we hear what he thinks is important about why he does what he does. He believes, he knows in fact, that he is called by God to do the kinds of things that Paul does. Traveling around the Mediterranean, strengthening the churches, building a team of missionaries and pastors, preaching the gospel where it's never gone before. As far as Paul is concerned, he does this because it is a divine calling. Paul did not take a personality test and realize this is what I'm best at, so this is what I'm going to do. God called him and pushes him through his life to actually his point of death. Everything I do, the preaching that I have been given is a command from God to me. So this is why we do this, Titus. And he uses some really powerful language just in his introduction. He says, I am a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you're reading from a different translation where he says a servant of God, many translations just simply use the word slave of God because that is in fact the Greek word that he uses, doulos. That's what you would call a slave in the Greco-Roman world. And so Paul is happy to put this label upon himself. And he does so often throughout his epistles. When you read, Paul says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, or a prisoner of Jesus Christ, or a slave of Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, this is my obligation to God. This is my relationship to God. 
He is my Lord and directs me in all that I do, and I will do it to the best of my ability. He is my Lord, and I am his servant, and I am his slave. So when Paul uses this language, he is speaking of his obligation to do the things that God has called him to do. God is in charge, and Paul lives to do his work. So he's a servant of God, and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. So not only is there this sense of obligation to my divine calling, Paul reminds Titus, the church, and us that he is an apostle. So there's his obligation to God, and now there is his authority over the church. That what he speaks now, what he writes to Titus, doesn't come from Paul, but it comes from God. This is coming from the mouth of God. It becomes for us the actual word of God. So this is divine authority that he's dealing with. Now, this is one of those things that we trip up over in the modern American church, that there is such a thing as an authority structure, a spiritual authority structure inside of the church. But it is so important for Paul that he starts here with Titus, and then he teaches Titus how to create that structure in the church. And it's through that spiritual authority structure that the church deepens and strengthens itself, and it's through that structure that the church is intended to grow and draw others in to the kingdom of God. So he speaks of his obligation to God, and he speaks of his authority as Titus' spiritual leader and as an authority for us. So we are ultimately reading the word of God to us as well. So he's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why is he writing? What's the purpose of all of this? He says this in the second half of verse one. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Why is Paul writing to Titus? Because I want to talk about, I want to encourage, I want to explain the faith those who are elect of God, and to help encourage their knowledge of the truth of God because we're aiming toward godliness. We're aiming toward holiness. The sentence that rolls through verses one, two, and three especially is a rich sentence that is full of insight and powerful truths and vocabulary into the life of the church and the character of God. What we read in these first four verses is truth tightly packed. Almost every word, almost every phrase is full of important stuff for us and important stuff about who God is. So Paul and Titus are working for the sake of provoking faith and strengthening the faith of those who belong to Jesus Christ. This is for the sake of the church needs to grow because there are people out there who have not yet heard the gospel, but God is going to call them into the church. So Titus, this is what we do. This is how we build the church for the sake of those whom God has called, but they have not yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to strengthen and encourage that kind of faith in Jesus. 
so that they can get to know him who is the way, the truth, and the life, and so that their lives then can become more like Christ and less like the sin that led them before that point. We're provoking faith. We're speaking faith. We're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And then we gather to strengthen the faith of believers who have become a part of the church. We're strengthening and encouraging our trust in Jesus Christ. That's just what the Greek word for faith means. It's pistis. It means confidence in or trust in. The word faith isn't a fuzzy notion. It isn't an emotion. It's trust in Jesus Christ. You see, Christ calls us out of our sin and into his kingdom. The church is the elect of God. You belong to Jesus Christ because God has called you. God has elected you to be his children. And we make our appeal to the world to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. See, the spiritual leadership of the church is intended to build the church of Jesus Christ into godliness, into Christ-likeness, to make the church into something that looks more and more like Jesus Christ. This is why the church existed 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote to Titus. This is why the church exists today. This is important for us because in our cultural context, there's a profound amount of mission drift inside of the church, losing sight of the core realities and truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and exchanging them for a lot of things that the culture says is important, but the gospel says is secondary. The first thing we do is we get to know Jesus and we grow in godliness, and then everything else flows from that. But an increasing number of churches in our culture today have swapped all of that, and they've picked up other things. There's a lot of pressure in the modern American church for the pastor to build a church that's full of hype. A lot of flash and dash and smoke machines and loud noises. Now, if you know me, you know I'm all about flash and dash. I am Mr. Charisma. I decided to stand up this morning because, whoo, fire's gonna fall. Most days I'd rather be at home under the covers with a book, right? But there's so much power for the church to be about hype because we have to impress people. We have to keep bringing them back. We have to give them a show. We have to overwhelm them with something. There are parts of the church right now who have openly decided that the way for the church to grow and to honor God is to accommodate to the culture. The culture has said certain things are important, so we're gonna decide that those things are important, and we're gonna sort of slide all of this into the background. We have things like the prosperity gospel. I happened to run across um, a website for a church uh, just this week, and this church's uh, mission statement, and I've got some of the words backward, but the mission statement was equity, holistic justice, and absolute inclusion. I think the Apostle Paul would write a letter to that church. 
and encourage them to start with other things. To not be a culturally accommodating church, but to be a gospel preaching church so that the people of God grow in the knowledge of God which accords with godliness. Paul says this kind of thing often in his letters. One of my favorite passages like this comes from the book of Colossians chapter one, verses 28 and 29. Paul says this to the church. Him, speaking of Jesus, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is why I work. This is why I spend myself. So that the church may grow like Jesus Christ and be presented to him. It's a holy and spotless bride. This is why we do what we do. We do this for the sake of God's elect, he says, and for the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Another translation takes that phrase and just simply puts it like this. So that their knowledge, they grow in knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness knowing more and more about Jesus and who he is and the way he works within us, knowing more and more about his word leads us toward lives of holiness. We're just gonna use that word, holiness. Instead of lives lived by our sin, we now have lives that are directed by the character and nature and holiness of God. Living a godly, holy life requires that we are in right relationship with God that we are in right relationship with truth, with reality itself. We read this kind of thing in the Gospel of John a lot. It was so important to Jesus that he would say things like, if you stick close to me and you stick close to my word, then you know the truth and the truth will set you free. He tells his disciples things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I do a little bit of teaching, which means I grade a lot of tests, which means I'm frustrated often. (laughs) But think about it like this, you cannot pass a test if you're in a poor relationship with the class materials. You've got the syllabus, you've got your notes, you've got the books, it's time for the test, but you don't know any of that stuff, you're in poor relationship with all the information in the class, you're you're gonna have a frustrating time with the test. You're not in a good relationship with the materials you need to know. We're not gonna be able to lead lives that honor God, lives that accord with godliness, lives that grow in holiness unless we are in the right relationship with the truth. So Paul says we're doing this for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. The life in which our sin is conquered by the power of the Holy Spirit. If there is no greater daily goal, I don't know what it is, but that the sin in my life would be conquered by the power of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Imagine the Garden of Eden before the fall, Adam and Eve's relationship. 
with God and with the garden was necessarily intertwined with their knowledge of God, their perfect and intimate relationship with him, their knowledge of him. And what broke that perfect face-to-face relationship? When Eve and Adam believed the lie, their relationship with God and their relationship with the perfect garden were broken. And so now, Paul says, this is what the church does. We are rebuilding that relationship. We're getting to know more and more about who Jesus is so that what happened in our sin and what got disconnected there can be rebuilt by the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's leading us to his perfect and final and eternal city where we will see him face to face and be in perfect knowledge of God. It's incredible what God is doing for us. In fact, that's the very next thing that Paul says For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. The hope of eternal life. God has promised eternal life to his children. And the way Paul puts it, he promised it, it was his intention even before time began. That's a really interesting thought. It was always God's intention that his creatures would be with him forever. That's what God thinks of humanity. This is what God intends for humanity. But Eve and Adam, they believe the lie that relationship is broken and now sin has entered our lives and every one of us is guilty of sin and that relationship has been broken But as we talked about so often in the Gospel of John, none of us have the capacity or wherewithal to rebuild that relationship with God ourselves. So what God does is he opens the door and he does the building and he does the work and he calls us and he dies on the cross and he rises again from the dead to rebuild that relationship. We had a young man who was a part of this church years ago, and it was, it was really a, a cool story. God had gotten a hold of his life. He had actually come out of addiction. He was rebuilding his relationship with his kid. He was faithful to church. You could just tell as he interacted with you, as he spent time with us, that God was doing powerful things in his life. And then he disappeared. And I tried to track him down, and I finally got a hold of him, and I discovered he slipped back into that addiction, and he slipped back into that anger with God. And as I interacted with him for a little while, the bottom line of his frustration at that point was this. Now, now hear this, because we hear this kind of frustration a lot. He said, I cannot worship of God who has decided to just throw a bunch of people into hell. You know what that boils down to? That boils down to somebody saying, I want to do whatever I want to do, and I demand that God is okay with it. God has not decided to just throw a bunch of people in hell. Our sin separates us from God. What God does is he saves sinners and brings them into heaven. That's what God does. It is our sin that separates us from God. 
It was always God's intention that his creatures would dwell with him for all of eternity. And that promise still stands. It's incredible. God will be with his children for all of eternity, those who have believed in Jesus Christ. We see this in Revelation 22, verses four and five. If you're having a bad day, you should read the first several verses of Revelation chapter 22. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In the hope of eternal life, which God had promised, before even time began. Friends, these are the kinds of things that a healthy church spends time on. These are the kinds of things that healthy Christians, when we gather in whatever form in which we gather, these are the kinds of things we spend time on. There are these topics that give us our reasons for gathering together. Friends, the body of Christ needs to be a place of spiritual confrontation. It just needs to be. Our sins and our unbelief need to be confronted and need to be dealt with. If we feel that conviction, if we feel that discomfort that comes from the Holy Spirit, that is a powerful grace that's being given to you. It's a gift from God to get rid of that sin and be in closer relationship with Jesus Christ. Our practical atheism needs to be shattered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by practical atheism? We say that God exists and I am his child, but then we live as if atheism is true. We live as if he doesn't really matter at all. What about the powerful presence, the miraculous working power of the presence of the Holy Spirit amongst us needs to shatter that practical atheism so that you and I learn how to live as if this is all true? As if Jesus really is risen from the dead, our soon incoming king, and the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is with us right now. That's a different life. That's a different life. And the body of Christ needs to be a place of spiritual preparation. Our spiritual lethargy, and it's so easy to fall into that rut of spiritual lethargy, needs to be replaced with staging for battle. When we gather together, we're reminded of these things. We're revived by these things. We're encouraged with one another. We are pricked by some of the things that we've heard and that we've sung and that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of our lives and we've staged for battle and then we go back out into the rest of the world. These are the kinds of things that happen. And Paul says, this is, these are the kinds of things. This is why I do what I do. This is why I'm writing. This is why you grow the church. This is why you structure the church the way that you do. Because God is at work changing lives. And then Paul just slips this in. In verse two, in hope of eternal life, 
which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. I hope moments like that in scripture just stop you, because they should. God who never lies. This is a great truth that snuck into the middle of an introduction that we typically skim over when we're reading an epistle. Paul, blah, 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 grace and truth, blah, blah, blah. Let's get to the good stuff. God who never lies. In ministry on Crete, for Titus, and for these new believers, this is important. In the Greek mythology, the primary god, um, the primary deity is Zeus. Now, in their mythology, Zeus comes from the island of Crete. So he's kind of a patron god for the Cretan people. It's part of their claim to Greek mythology and history and their importance and so on and so forth. If you know anything about Zeus, Zeus is not a good guy. He's, a, he's famously a powerful sneak. He's crafty, he's murderous, he's an unpredictable liar who had many children with many human women inside of their mythology. The pagan god that they idolized, maybe a better way of putting it, is that he is an untrustworthy rapist. That's who they worship. And into that, Paul throws this at Titus. He gives this to the church there in Crete. The God that we worship never lies. Never lies. So it's important for the church at Crete. It's an important thing for Titus to spend time on. And it's an important thing for us as well to make sense of this truth that God cannot lie. Here's part of what this makes me think about as I spent time with this thought this week. It is increasingly popular in the American church right now to deny the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. To deny the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, what does that mean? Inerrancy. Here's just a very, here's just a nutshell description of inerrancy. All of Scripture is the actual word of God. All of it has a claim on me. If I belong to Jesus Christ, if I'm reading his word to know the will of God, I do not have the license to pick and choose. I submit to it, I learn from it who God is because I believe it is inspired by God. Every word, every thought, everything from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is breathed by God for us. It's increasingly popular in the American church to deny that doctrine. It's increasingly popular to also deny what's called the sufficiency of Scripture. What we mean by that is this. Scripture is our sufficient guide for what we believe, for what we believe about reality, for what we believe about our faith, and how we behave, what my life should look like, the way I interact with you, the way my emotions and thoughts and intentions work, the priorities of my financial life, all of these things 
are given to me by the word of God. It is sufficient to deal with the issues of my life, to teach me who God is and what I believe about God. But if human beings begin to say things like, okay, I just read that, but God didn't really mean that, or God didn't really say that, he meant something else, you're instantaneously on a slippery slope that goes all the way down. It is an inevitable line of dominoes. As soon as an individual, a pastor or a church or a denomination begins to deny the inerrancy of scripture, you have no guardrails. There are no levees that keep the tsunami from flooding the shore because you've decided this verse of scripture doesn't apply to us anymore. Well, says who? Well, says me. Well, what if I decide, well, this verse of scripture doesn't apply to me anymore. Do you see where this goes? All the way down. Friends, when we do this, we replace the veracity of scripture with the infallibility of our feelings. We replace the veracity or the truthfulness of scripture with the infallibility of our feelings. What I feel about how I should behave is always right. And God just happens to be wrong a little over 50% of the time. You see how this works? This is a little bit like saying when God talks about marriage, he's lying. This is a little bit like saying when God talks about his plan for human sexuality, he's actually lying. Paul says to Titus, to the Cretans who used to worship Zeus, he says to you and me today, God cannot lie. Let's think about this for a moment. God, by his very nature, cannot lie. In fact, I believe just reflecting on the character of God for a few moments, who he is, leads us to this realization. It is a rational truth about God. It's not the case that God could lie, he just never does. It's not the case that he could lie, he doesn't want to, but he could. What is true is that it is impossible for God to lie. You might know somebody who never lies. And if you do, you know a human being who could lie, but just doesn't. God is different than that. He cannot lie. God beholds all of reality at a glance. He knows all of it at once. Our God, the one who truly exists, is perfectly good and wise. And all that he knows and all that he speaks is nothing but true. All of his intentions, the very will of God, is nothing but true and good and just and righteous. This is the God that we know and worship. Others worship gods who only see in part and whose understanding is clouded by their own wickedness and deceitfulness, so those gods are unreliable liars. And it's not just Zeus, it's politicians. It's worldly ideologies. It's philosophies that have nothing to do with Christ and the word of God. They're all liars. 
But you've got another option, friend. You can worship and get to know and spend eternity with a God who cannot lie. What does this mean? This means that God is utterly trustworthy in all things. Because all that he says is true, you can trust all of it. The perfection of his character means that all lying and all falsehood are actually impossible. So when we say that all of his promises are true, we're not just trying to make you feel better. We're actually telling you something about God. He cannot lie. And if he says it, it's true. So get this. If he says that a sinner can be forgiven, washed clean, saved, and pulled safely into eternity with God, guess what? It's true. It's actually true. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not that he can do that in some cases, but others are a little bit tricky and it's gonna take some paperwork. He says it, this is true. It's absolutely true. You know what else is true? If Christ says that sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God, then no matter how many sins we want to justify, Sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, as Jesus is talking about those who played the game, who used him for their own purposes. He says in Matthew 25, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It is impossible for God to lie. So he is trustworthy in everything he says. And then I read this from the great pastor theologian Charles Haddon Spurgeon as he had written a sermon on this passage of scripture. He put it like this, I could neither love, worship, nor obey a lying God. I just can't. And he's right, you can if we admit one lie into God's character or his word to us, then nothing can be trusted. But as Paul writes to the other pastor, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of scripture has been breathed out by God. This is the doctrine of inspiration. It's not most of it, it's not the parts that you like today, all of it. God is trustworthy because he never lies. And then Paul tells Titus, all of this in God's good timing has been manifested through our preaching. This is what we're about. This is what we do. This is why we gather as the church. This is why we think it's important for the church to encroach in the kingdom of the world. This is why we think it's important for the kingdom of God to make its way into the darkness and transform it into light. 
We don't believe that this is all that we need and then we just kind of close our eyes until the rapture happens. This is why we gather, this is why we go. All of these incredible things that we've read about in these verses, our faith, our trust in Christ, our knowledge of our truth in Christ, our growth in godliness and holiness, our hope of eternal life, these are the objects of our preaching, these are the objects of our devotion, these are the objects of our time together as followers of Jesus Christ. When we gather in each and every forum, we need to be reminded of these kinds of things over and over and over. This is just one of the reasons why time with the people of God is so important and increasingly so, as the writer of Hebrew puts it, as we see the day, the day of the Lord approaching. One way or another, you and I need to learn how to point each other back to God, back to his word, back to who he is back to what he has done for us and can do in his transformative power. It's like an antiseptic. It's the cleaning of the sin of our lives. It's like the shot of adrenaline that we need in our spiritual lethargy is changed to movement for the kingdom of God. This is how Paul puts a lot of this a little bit later on inside of this book. Chapter three Look over there, maybe the other side of the page in your Bibles, and this is how we're gonna finish. We're just gonna read a few of these verses. Titus chapter three, beginning in verse four. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an incredible set of things that you have granted this morning that we spend time with. You've brought us here for this purpose. We have opened your word, Father, to hear things that you have breathed out for our good, for the good of the church, for the good of spiritual leaders, for the good of the growth of followers of Jesus Christ for the good of those who need to come to know Jesus so that their lives can be moved from darkness to light. Heavenly Father, may you be at work within us. May that transforming power continue and deepen and strengthen and that what we we do together would increase our knowledge of our Savior Jesus so that our lives may grow in Christ-likeness. Instead of our sin-likeness, there is now Christ-likeness. Instead of the darkness and brokenness, there is now light and healing and life. How good is our God? How good is our God? Hallelujah.